very fortunate to have Dr. Mike Zag, uh, who's professor of medicine at the University of Alabama um, and has worked in antiretroviral therapy since the beginning uh, to update us on status of new HIV drugs. Mike. Thank you, Tripp. So this is a great talk to give because it's, there's always new information. And uh, I'm going to start off and just ask everyone a question. Whoops. Oh, sorry. This isn't my question, but we can go for that. Have you updated your new profile on the website? I guess we'll go ahead and vote. Is that right? Okay. I haven't done mine yet, but I need to. Maybe it was to me. Okay. A quarter of you have. Excellent. Good for you. All right, here we go. So I'm going to start off with a question for you guys. Now, we talk a lot about HCV. I'm not talking about HCV. There's 60, 50 drugs in development. For HIV, not including Elvitegravir anymore, how many drugs are in development that you know of? Go ahead and vote. All right, so 42% of you have actually looked at the handout. <laughs> but to be honest, when I started, when, when Tripp and Scott asked me to do the talk, I thought, oh, new drugs? I can only think of three or four. And then I started looking and went, wow. So indeed, there are many. And we're going to talk about the ones on this slide today. And then there's a few more that I'm won't have time to go into, but there's an NNRTI called CMX-157. And then there's one that's been circling around for a while, which is EFDA, which is an uh, adenosine analog we won't talk about. But let's go through the ones uh, that we do have time to go over. And I've organized them, as you can tell, from uh, the uh, where they act. So the first one is a Bristol-Myers Squibb drug, 986001. And it's called Festinavir. And, no, we've gone from Elvis to Festus. I, I don't know. Um, maybe uh, keeping up with things. So Festinavir is actually, a, is, think of it as D4T without the toxicity. At least that's why they're moving forward with it. So I think a lot of us, if you remember back to the mid-'90s, sort of fell out of love with AZT, and D4T became all the rage because you could give it and people wouldn't throw up on your shoe. And... Uh, Everybody got excited, but then after about a year or two, people started having pancreatitis and peripheral neuropathy, lactic acidosis, and D4T has, has fallen out of favor since then. But this drug has an EC50 uh, for the DNA polymerase gamma, which is that mitochondrial enzyme that's 100-fold less than D4T. And in fact, in the renal proximal tubule cells, muscle cells, adipocytes, where you have the fat wasting and the renal cells, et cetera, this drug does not appear to have uh, the toxicity anywhere close to what D4T did. So they're moving ahead um, with development of this drug, and this will be a nucleoside. You say, why do we need another one? I don't know. We'll find out as it moves along. But I guess if you had a nuke that had no renal toxicity and sort of like FTC or 3TC but had the activity like D4T or AZT, it would be exciting. 
So also in the nucleoside, nucleotide range is this Gilead drug, Gilead Science 7340. This one I think you probably have heard about before. Uh, this is a um, tenofovir prodrug of sorts, but it's, it's a drug that targets the intracellular concentration or could be concentrated inside the cell with, in essence, tenofovir. And you can see here that there are um, doses in the, in the sort of second line. You get about a 0.5 log reduction of um, virus in the first 10 days or 11 days or so. But when you use this drug at either 8 milligrams, 25, or 40 milligrams, and compare that to 300 of the tadafavir that we know and use every day, you get a pretty dramatic drop in virus. And this study um, was recently reported that they took treatment-naive adults who had viral loads greater than 2,000 and CD4 counts greater than 200. There was about 8 per arm and either gave them tenofovir once daily or any one of uh, several different doses of 8, 25, or 40 milligrams of 7340, and then watched to see the activity. And what you see is that in terms of intracellular concentrations, or sorry, this is plasma concentrations, as you um, might expect, um, tenofovir, this kind of got turned around actually, so tenofovir was the, is the orange one. It's a little bit confusing because it's in blue, but actually the top line is the tenofovir 300 milligrams. And you can see that proportionately there's less drug for uh, the GS7340 um, based on 825 or 40. But the point is that this is the plasma concentration. And what's more important is the intracellular concentration. So here on the far... Um, left-hand side is tenofovir 300 milligrams, the intracellular concentration is really quite low. And, uh, but when you look at the 8, 25, or 40 milligrams of 7340, it's higher. And this seems to be, as you saw from the first slide, translating into a more antiretroviral activity. And so this drug is continuing to be developed. Moving on to non-nukes, um, you say, well, okay, do we need another one? Well, maybe. Um, this is the Merck drug, MK1439. And the folks at Merck have been very stringent about wanting to move forward. They sort of have the doubting Thomas mindset that I think most of you have, where you say, well, we w what would we want in a new drug that's a nuke, non-nuke? We'd want it to be once daily. We want it to have activity against resistant virus. We want it to be well-absorbed, not terribly... Uh, loaded with any kind of side effect, um, et cetera, and co-formulatable, if that's a word. So they were able to develop this compound that has all those characteristics I just said, plus you can see on this slide that <clears throat> the wild-type virus has about 20 nanomolar um, IC95, and that's comparable to what you see if you go down that column of a favorins or etrovirine or rapivirine. But as you move across uh, these different columns, you can see that a K103N sort of destroys nevirapine's activity and afavirin's, and as you know, not so much etrovirine or rapivirine. But as you start getting Y181C, which are more the Achilles heels for etrovirine and for, for rapivirine, the activity of this 1439 remains pretty strong. And even when you have the two K103N and Y181C mutations together, um, there's a pretty um, 
robust activity that remains for this compound. The protein binding uh, is a little bit less, meaning more active drug can get free and into cells. And all these are in your handouts, all these data. Then when they ask the question, okay, well, how many of the transmitted resistant viruses have either K103N, Y181C, or uh, G190A, and you can see that over 90% of transmitted drug resistance, at least in the United States, is uh, one of those ilk. So it could be that <clears throat> this drug might be very active against those uh, viruses. And as uh, Tripp said earlier, uh, the CDC is now reporting about 16% of patients have some uh, resistant virus that was transmitted to them, usually one position, but this would be uh, uh, maybe helpful in that, in that model. So moving now from the outside of the cell, thinking about the difference now between an entry inhibitor and a fusion inhibitor. When you think fusion inhibitor, you'll think of T20. When you think entry inhibitor, you might think of CCR5 inhibitors like Moraviroc. Well, this drug, BMS626529, or its cousin compound, 663068, I'm sure these will have names fairly soon, uh, again, are BMS compounds. And we've known about this as a so-called attachment inhibitor, and it's a methylphosphate prodrug of the, of the cousin that I just mentioned, 6529. So 3068 seems to be the compound that is moving forward. And, it, and instead of binding to CCR5 or the host receptor, this actually binds to the virus at the GP120. And again, to keep it straight, this is binding to GP120, which then binds to CD4 and then the co-receptor, CCR5 or CXCR4, whereas fusion inhibitors like T20 interfere with GP41, a part of the envelope, as it extends and it polymerizes around it and prevents fusion. So this is a, indeed an entry inhibitor, and it binds to GP120 and blocks that binding, that initial binding to the CD4 receptor. It's resulted in monotherapy of eight days of a two to three log decrease in HIV RNA, which is pretty nice. However, the Achilles heel on this compound is that they know that there's some natural resistance uh, in the envelope region. So, for example, if there's an M426L, we're not used to the, the triple-digit numbers, but now remember we're in the envelope region of the virus. So at position 426, if that mutation is present, the binding of the attachment inhibitor is not strong enough to really prevent. So it's likely, at least in my opinion, that what we might do if this drug moves forward or as it moves forward is that they're going to be screening in the envelope region for the presence or absence of known mutations that reduce that binding. And if those mutations are not present, then they'll test those patients in, in the studies, and it looks like it, there'll be a fair amount of activity. Um, so that's going to be a bit of an Achilles heel, another test that we might have to think about ordering prior to starting therapy. But my sense is that this will for sure be a genotype um, that could just be added on as you do your initial drug resistance testing before you start therapy, as you do in all patients now anyway. Now, moving on, believe it or not, this drug is a fusion inhibitor. And after, I mean, I don't know, how many of you in the last year have written a de novo prescription for T20? A couple, yeah. Whereas if this were 2000, we all wished we had T20 as some of our patients were running out of options. But because of the injection site reactions and the twice-daily injections, uh, we don't use a whole lot of T20 now unless we kind of have to. It's good that it's there for those patients, but 
You say, well, why would anybody want to develop yet another fusion inhibitor, especially if it's an injectable? And the answer is half-life. So, albuvertide, I'm sorry, albuvertide, albuvertide, is a modified peptide from GP41. Sounds familiar, like T20. It has a plasma half-life of 11 days when given IV. So another theme that you're going to hear now emerging as new drugs are developed for HIV is, yes, potency, somewhat uh, convenience, and low side effect profile, but more and more we're going to be hearing about long-acting agents. I'm going to talk about another one in, uh, in just a minute. But this is now a long-acting agent that might support once weekly dosing. So all of a sudden, the notion of an injection site reaction, if it's only going to be once a week and there's not a lot of other side effects, that could be nice for some patients, especially if you can combine it with one or two other drugs that could be given once weekly. And you can start imagining in certain populations, perhaps, or in certain patients who want this, once weekly dosing either by themselves or with directly observed therapy. And so these types of options might start to emerge with this type of development. This drug uh, binds to the, uh, uh, actually to the, it says the C4 receptor, I thought it had bound to the GP41, but um, regardless, it, cre it produces a one log decrease in HIV RNA at this 320 milligram dose. And so far, they aren't seeing a lot of uh, injection site reactions, but actually when the, in one of the phase one studies, five of eight patients at higher doses started having them. And so I think we can expect that because it is a modified peptide and it's likely to have some inflammation at the site. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time on elvitegravir because it was just released. And even though when I asked you the question up front about whether or not, uh, how many drugs are in development not to include it, um, I am including it in the talk because in the in the section that we're about to go into, the case management that Dr. Hammer is going to lead, uh, we're going to be talking about the use potentially of this drug. So as you know, elvitegravir is a uh, strand transfer integrase inhibitor, and it's paired up with cobacistat, which is a ritonavir-like inhibitor of the CYP3A4 enzyme. So we have two new drugs, in essence, coming out in this one new compound. So these drugs are now being paired, as you know, with tenofovir and FTC, and the trade name for this single drug once daily is Strybuild. Strybuild. And the STR part of the name uh, comes from the concept of single uh, tablet formulation, so um, single tablet regimen. So that's where we are with that drug. I'm going to go over some of the data that's recently been presented, and in essence, it, it's, it's convenient because the a company had in one or two of the presentations taken data, more, like, more or less what they presented to the FDA, and took data from several studies and collapsed it into one larger analysis that's fraught with some hazard because you aren't randomizing out of one pool, but these are three randomized trials for which they uh, combined. Before I get into those data, I want to remind everyone about something new. It's really interesting, isn't it? it um, I think I'll just speak first person for me. Stuff that I'd maybe deliberately forgot from my first two years of medical school and the basic sciences seemed to all come back to haunt me in the practice of HIV medicine, right? So things like CYP3A4, I mean, yeah, I might have remembered that, but suddenly I had to use it every day. Or um, other types of uh, enzyme interactions or 
issues with, HO, uh, with HMG-CoA and, and cholesterol and metabolism and sort of vitamin D like you just heard about. Well, here's something new that we got to remember or learn again, uh, and that is renal transport proteins in the proximal tubule. So why is this important? Well, in the case of tenofovir, which is on the left-hand side of this slide, there are two enzymes called OAT1 and OAT3 that are responsible for getting tenofovir into the proximal renal tubule, and then it acts on MRP4 uh, that has to do with apical secretion. And so that's one of the possible mechanisms, if not the likely mechanism, for which there can be proximal renal tubular dysfunction from tenofovir. And also, I should have said this earlier, but with the other Gilead compound that I talked about that's kind of the uh, lower-dose version of tenofovir, there doesn't seem to be as much uh, renal toxicity. At least that's the hope, I think, of the company at this point, one of the reasons they move forward. But tenofovir itself can cause the proximal tubular dysfunction, sometimes leading to Fanconi syndrome. Now, on the right-hand side of the slide, and germane to the discussion of elvitegravir, is where cobacystat works. And so I'm still in the same proximal tubule cell, and this cation transport pathway is responsible for something that, to be honest, heretofore I had not thought of in a long time. And that is that I always thought of creatinine as being related directly to glomerular filtration. In other words, you look at creatinine clearance, that tells you how well the kidney is functioning in terms of the glomerulus. Well, there is a part of creatinine clearance, a small part, that is actually secretion of creatinine through these proximal tubules. And it just so happens that cobacystat has some inhibition of this. And so with every time you use Kobe, you're going to see a small bump in the serum creatinine that is not related to a reduction in creatinine clearance. So what that means is that if you do an estimated GFR through Cockcraft-Galt or MDRD like we usually do, you're going to see what in essence is an artificial look of about, I don't know, a couple cc drop, maybe more, in estimated creatinine clearance. If you use a iohexol clearance test, which tells you true glomerular filtration, even though the estimated GFR might have dropped by, let's say, 10 cc's per minute, the iohexol had not changed one iota, confirming that cobecystat is inhibiting at this level for the secretion of creatinine, creating an artificial bump. <sighs> With me? Okay. Now let's see how that plays out in the real world. So here are the studies that I mentioned that are combined uh, by the company Gilead Sciences. And so there's study 104 that, as you can see, and I apologize for using trade names. It just got to be too much to put into here. But Strybuild, which we used to know as Quad, Strybuild once a day versus a tripla ATR once daily um, or a tripla active at night versus the Strybuild once daily. That was one of the phase two studies. And then the two phase three studies that get them approval were study 102 and 103, one of which was against the fixed-dose combination of atripla, and the other which was adazanavir, ritonavir with uh, tenofovir, FTC as fixed-dose. And what they did is they combined the arms from all these studies that they were, um, the Strybold group, um, they combined all of them together. If they were atripla, they could put them together, and of course they kept the adazanavir separate from those. And this is sort of how it looks. In the numbers, you can see, of course, there's a lot more people on the elvitegravir. 
uh, or Strybuild arm, overall 749. And then uh, a triplet had 375, and the Atazanavir um, had 335. And I think you can take home from this that these populations were similar. Um, most patients had asymptomatic disease. Uh, HPV and HCV uh, seropositive was actually much lower than what we typically see, at least in our population. I'm sure yours as well. Um, the only about 30 to 40 percent of patients had greater than 100,000 copies of baseline, and the median CD4 count was in the 300 plus range, like around 380. So that's who we're dealing with. And then again, baseline GFR was really quite high because these are younger, healthier people and the baseline estimated creatinine clearance was around 114 or so. So with that as background, looking at the um, quad, if you will, versus um, a triple versus uh, overall, you can see that virologic success, the gold bar is the stribeld versus the a triple in blue, is that there was um, uh, a bit better outcome combined uh, when you had the quad or the, the alvitegravir arm versus a tripla. And the new thing with the FDA now is a so-called snapshot analysis, which means right at week 48, let's see what it looks like. And so there's, as you can see, at week 48, missing data on 5 and 9% of patients respectively. So that kind of, you want to watch that as we do the interpretation here. So a few more patients in the a triple arm were missing at that week 48 time point. Um, on the far right-hand side is that sort of whisker analysis that you try to get at uh, superiority. I would say in this particular type of analysis, that is not kosher. We really can't compare three different studies, throw them together, increase the power kind of artificially, and then claim superiority. But I think what we can say is that there doesn't appear to be a lot of difference in virologic outcome at 48 weeks between these two regimens. And that's, I think, the news. If you look at the atazanavir, um, oh, sorry, yeah, if you look at, at uh, uh, atazanavir boosted with ritonavir, you can see that the virologic success was similar. That's the gold versus the green. Uh, virologic non-suppression was similar. And in this case, again, for whatever reason, there was more, a little bit more missing data uh, in the uh, uh, atazanavir dose. Uh, but, again, I think the take-home point is that there's not a lot of difference between the two. So you can say what, whether or not it favors. I think all you can take from this is that it doesn't seem to be harmful going on to the quad versus either of those two very popular first regimens that we currently use all the time. If we look at the 100,000 greater or less, doesn't seem to be a lot of difference overall for each. No matter what regimen you're on, there's a little bit less success, as we've known for years, um, and for higher CD4 counts and lower CD4 counts, that doesn't seem to make as much of a difference. So the higher viral load, perhaps, but nothing that sort of jumps out at you and saying that one regimen versus another versus another, based on the baseline viral load, uh, will drive you in one direction. As far as CD4 count, again, you don't have to be a statistician. You can see that these are very similar. I would just say, in essence, no different between anyone who received Strybild, anyone who received a Tripla, or anyone who received Atazanavir, Ritonavir, plus uh, Tenofovir FTC. I think where it probably gets interesting, at least to me, where I might start 
thinking about one regimen versus another versus another really is in the tolerability and the AE profile. And I th just as an aside, where I think we are in HIV therapeutics today is that everything is a niche. Every single drug or use of a drug is going to be kind of a niche. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all like we'd hoped for one day, but I think there's a certain patient who would be more likely to do well on regimen A and another one who wouldn't do so well there but would do better on regimen B, et cetera. And that's our job when we're in the clinic because I think the relative activity of these compounds are all the same. The question is what regimen is the patient most likely to take every day and which regimen is least likely to have a side effect or a long-term complication, be it renal insufficiency, bone, could it be uh, uh, rash, depression? Those types of things are going to start coming into our equation. They already have. And we'll be making decisions about which regimen for which patient on a very individualized basis. So I think here on this particular slide is where we can learn. So diarrhea, a little bit more common with atazanavir. On the other hand, uh, skin rash, more common with atripla. Uh, depression, um, which is on the middle of that column, a little bit more common with, uh, uh, with atripla, um, et cetera. For creatinine, here we go. So this is the, I think this is the key take-home slide with regard to that, that uh, enzyme in the proximal tubule. <clears throat> what you'll notice is that in the gold bar um, is the stribilt, and you'll see that on average creatinine, serum creatinine, by week 48 had gone up 0.13 milligrams percent, as opposed to, for example, a triplet where it hardly budged at all. And for the atazanavir, it was somewhere in between. But if you look on the right-hand side, if you could draw, in essence, a line at week four on that left-hand panel and then look at the slopes or look at what happened to creatinine, serum creatinine after week four, it's pretty much flat no matter what regimen. Take-home point, that effect of cobacystat on that proximal tubule secretion of creatinine happens almost immediately. So what effect you're going to see, you can see it in the first two to four weeks. So expect your patients that you start on cobacystat that when they come back for week four or week six visit and you check their serum creatinine, that's when you expect about that 0.1 or 0.15 increase. Be careful if you see something of 0.4 or higher. That's when you, there's probably much more than just a cobacystat effect. There's other types of toxicity that's very likely to be related to true impact on glomerular filtration. And that's someone either at that initial time point or later on in the course of following these patients, you're going to be wanting to consider changing regimen. I doubt that you're going to be able to do an IO-hexol uh, creatinine clearance estimate. Another kind of benchmark or rule of thumb that I'm gleaning from the package insert and from the literature is that if the estimated GFR starts to drop much below 70 and certainly below 60, that's when you're going to want to think about suspending treatment with, uh, with Strybelt and going to individual regimens or finding some other alternative regimen. At least that's what the conservative read of the data are at this point. And we might be able to discuss this a little bit further. I may be alone in that opinion. An advantage of cobacystat over ritonavir, I think one way to think about it is that it is ritonavir, uh, in terms of CYP3A4, it has a little bit less impact on other isoenzymes like 2D6. 
but it also has less impact on lipids than what you typically see with ritonavir, and that's probably good news for COBE. And what you see here is the atriple regimen in, in blue, and you see the adazanavir regimen in green, and the cobacistat regimen in, in uh, sort of a yellow-orange. And you can see that, for the most part, the, um, the cobacistat regimen performs like ritonavir. That's the um, yellow versus the green, except in triglycerides. And ritonavir seems to have more impact on triglycerides than does the cobacistat. So, for example, if you had a patient who has a chronic problem with hypertriglyceridemia, and you're debating between a ritonavir-based regimen or a cobacistat regimen, that might be the case, assuming creatinine clearance and all that are relatively normal, where you might choose cobacistat, one differentiating feature. As far as resistance goes, um, think about the think about elvitegravir resistance like you do raltegravir resistance. It's pretty much the same. There's some minor differences at position 143, and there's this um, 66 mutation that you see with elvitegravir that you typically don't see with raltegravir. But those details, I don't think you have to remember. Just think about it almost in the same line. So that is, if somebody's failed raltegravir, it's unlikely you're going to be able to rescue them easily with elvitegravir because the resistance mutation, should they have been conferred from raltegravir, is going to confer resistance to elvitegravir. Uh, on the other hand, um, the resistance, first off, you're having success in 80 plus 90% of people. That's good. So we're going to treat for success. But when there is failure, you can anticipate mutations to occur, as you see on this slide. Notice, again, like most boosted PIs, at least if you're stopping therapy fairly soon after virologic, confirmed virologic failure, you typically don't see the emergence of resistance when you're using a boosted PI like uh, adazanavir or darunavir type of regimen. So then you're going to wonder, well, okay, what if I just use cobacistat independently? I've already talked about how it's bundled in this Strybild uh, pill, the single tablet regimen. But they're also going to be releasing, and I don't think it's out yet, the, the cobacistat alone that you can use as potentially a booster. And this is one of the studies that Gilead Sciences did to try to see how it performed in boosting atazanavir. So it's a study like you would have designed if you were trying to answer the question. Uh, take about 350 people in each arm, so a 700-person study, treatment naive, viral loads greater than 5,000, any CD4 count, estimated GFR above 70, as we were just talking about, and randomized them to atazanavir, COBE, and FTC, tenofovir, versus a ritonavir placebo, or flip it around, and you give them ritonavir and a COBE placebo, and follow them out primary endpoint 48 weeks, but continue out to 192. And you see they perform, as you might expect, about the same. Um, the ritonavir group had a little bit more uh, success, 87 versus 85, compared to COBE. Um, in this case, the snapshot at 48 weeks didn't show any increase or decrease between the two in terms of no data available. That's nine out of 350 patients or so in each arm. And there may be on that whisker parameter on the far right-hand side a little bit of a nod to, uh, to the ritonavir, but it's, it's very slight and not statistically significant. As far as AEs, very similar. Uh, a lot of, uh, if anything, it's going to be, of course, the bilirubin, which is related to the adazanavir. I'm not even sure you can call that an AE. It's just an expected outcome, almost. But nausea, about the same. 
diarrhea, about the same. The usual side effects we're used to seeing with ritonavir, you're pretty much seeing with both drugs. And then as far as AEs leading to study discontinuation, again, remarkable similarities. Even the number or the proportion of patients coming, dropping out of each arm uh, was identical, basically. Not that much rash. Renal abnormalities were about the same, which was a bit of a surprise if you're looking at um, five of the six patients with atazanavir Kobe versus two of five discontinued due to proximal tubulopathy. Again, looking at what we talked about earlier, most of these changes in creatinine, serum creatinine and estimated creatinine clearance all occurred in the first two to four weeks. You can see this big jump um, in the left-hand panel uh, among those getting uh, the COBE versus the ritonavir. But then again, notice how it more or less stabilizes after that point forward. And so the effect is the immediate effect on the proximal tubule. And then again, as we showed in the last uh, uh, presentation or the last study we talked about, it's mostly the same in terms of cholesterol. Uh, there's a bit more of an increase in triglycerides uh, overall compared to cobacistat. So that's the new drug, new kid on the block. Uh, we're all going to be dancing with how to use it and when to use it, and that will be an individual decision that is based on your assessment of a patient and how well it might fit over some existing agents. I think there's clearly situations where existing agents would be preferred. Um, just a question of what fits for you and your patient. Now, the other drug that's the strand transfer integrase inhibitor is dolutegravir. And so this drug is not yet approved. It's on the way. I'm certainly within the next year, I would anticipate by this time next year, we probably would have it in our hands. But even right now, through expanded access, we can gain access to it through VIV or through uh, GSK. For patients who have failed raltegravir and have some of the strand transfer integrase inhibitor mutations that we talked about, because its activity uh, can remain at least to some degree. And this is a slide I, I got from TRIP. Um, that shows the spring one study results. This is where they took dolutegravir um, in 155 patients who had no integrase inhibitor mutations, and then um, looking at it versus efavirenz. And again, it looked like if you see the efavirenz is in now, in this case, in this sort of uh, turquoise or very light blue, that's the bottom line. And then you can see the three different doses, 10, 25, or 50 milligrams of dolutegravir um, up above. One thing to note, like you see with raltegravir, like you see with elvitegravir, and for reasons that I can't fully explain without waving my hands a lot, there is a more rapid decrease in viral load most any time you're using a strand transfer inhibitor. So when you see that eight-week response, which is close to 80 to 90%, that's unique among the other classes of drugs, including the protease inhibitors, including the non-nukes as the anchor drug. Um, clinical meaning, I don't have a clue. I, don't, I doubt there's much to it. Some people said, well, maybe we should use that in acute infection. It seems to work more powerfully. I don't know. Sounds okay to me. Um, to me, what's more important is that you get a regimen that people can tolerate and works and that they'll take. What's interesting here, just to kind of throw all of us a curveball, guess what? Without any cobacistat at all in the picture, dolutegravir also inhibits that, that creatinine secretion somewhat. Just a cruel twist of fate. 
you know, just something more to keep us awake at night or on our toes or something. But about a 0.1 to 0.15 increase in serum creatinine that is not related to a real decrease in GFR. Oh, joy. And as Tripp sort of alluded here, might we one day see a dolutegravir with um, a bacavir and 3TC single tablet regimen? As Sarah Palin would say, you betcha. So what about resistance mutations and, and uh, success here? So this is why the drug, this study was presented about a year or more, a year and a half ago by Joe Iron. This is called the Viking study, or one of the Viking studies. This is Viking 2 I'm showing you, in which they basically took, asked the question, 50 milligrams of dolutegravir once a day, which is going to be their predominant dosing, especially for naives, or dolutegravir 50 milligrams twice a day among people who have failed raltegravir. And what this study shows very nicely is that the twice-a-day dosing is really what we should be using for these um, multiple failure, especially if they failed a, uh, a strand transfer integrase inhibitor before. That would include raltegravir, of course, up till now, but in the future, elvitegravir as well. You want to look very closely at the, not exactly fine print, but the, the notice at the bottom of this, toward the bottom, is a primary endpoint getting less than 400, not less than 50, less than 400 or and or a greater than 0.7 log decline. So this isn't the same, this isn't, you know, sort of our mom's success. This isn't what we're going for in a naive patient. This is just saying, in essence, can we help this patient along sort of by some time? Because it, it's likely... I think, that if we aren't getting them to less than 50 copies or less than 20, over time, and it could be a long while, but over time, there likely will be emergence of dolutegravir resistance, and we'll, we'll anxiously watch the longer-term follow-up from this study, but that's what this study showed. So take-home point, 50 twice a day is what we should be using in those salvage situations when raltegravir has failed, and you can get that drug on compassionate use. Moving on, we have um, how is this drug working versus a tripla and tenofovir FTC, and this is the single study. Again, this is dolutegravir with abacavir. 3TC is a fixed-dose combination regimen, 88% versus 81%, and this turned out to be, in this study, a superiority outcome. As you can see by the um, confidence interval, the difference is 7.4 with the lower end of the confidence interval in the plus range, which implies it does not, which says it does not include zero and implies superiority which is the first time one of these, at least one of the few times, that a non-inferiority study has been inferred to in indicate superiority. You really want to prove it. You want to set the study up a little bit differently, but I think you can take it home that the dolutegravir is working pretty well. And, of course, they screened everyone for B5701 ahead of time. Um, here, here are just the data that are in your package. And uh, absolute CD4 count was a little bit better with the dolutegravir group versus a tripla. Side effect, uh, sorry, genotypes, there wasn't any emerging resistance here, so it's performing a little bit like the PI, unlike elvitegravir, unlike raltegravir. When you had failure virologically of dolutegravir, so far we're not seeing a lot in the way of resistance mutations. Side effect profile stopping therapy, uh, a lot fewer in the dolutegravir group, which is probably the reason for the superiority. That is, fewer people stopping the regimen because of a side effect. Renal safety, looky there. You've seen that before? 
You saw that with Kobe. Now you're seeing it with Dahlia Tegavir. I do not know why that is the case. It doesn't make sense on its surface, but that's the way it is, as Walter Cronkite would say. Uh, and then some liver abnormalities, a little bit more common with a triple, especially with the ALKFOS. I don't know what the clinical meaning of that is. We don't usually focus on that too much when we're using a triple. I'm going to finish with a couple more because I'm running low on time. I didn't mean to get, let the time get away from me. Um, this is a long-acting dolutegravir-type drug. Think about it that way. This is the GSK-744. Uh, um, and it has a nanosuspension technology, and they're going to be exploring this as either an oral drug with 5 to 30 milligrams or as a sub-Q administration. Now think back to that fusion inhibitor that had a long half-life. Now we have something to pair it with potentially, and this had very potent activity, active against resistant drug. I'm sorry for rushing here, but you can, this is in your handout. Um, again, worked at about a 2.5 log on an 11-day or 10-day treatment regimen. And look at this. Normally we see this type of plasma half-life and on the bottom is usually hours. That's weeks. That's weeks on the y-axis. Uh, or x-axis, sorry. Very, very uh, interesting results. And then finally I'm going to finish with something completely different or sort of different. And this is called uh, Legends. Not the Legends of Golf. Uh, this is Legends. And Legends are integrase-like molecules because there's this LEDGF P75 cofactor that has a lot to do with how the integrase process works. And it's a cofactor for HIV integrase. And in essence, these legends, which you can see at the bottom sort of described there in the drug, in that little pocket that's highlighted in the red circle, they have a binding site on integrase that they inhibit. And this is different than our usual strand transfer integrase inhibitor in a couple ways. One, it's not directly acting at strand transfer level. It's at this process of the coming together of this ligand and interfering with that. And that has two implications. I'll just cut to the chase. I'll skip these. Um, it's, in your, it's in your handout. But it's, it's the inhibition of that reaction that not only affects, I want to get to the one key slide here. Well, it, its effect is not only on creation of that provirus like you would expect, it also, when the next virus comes out, if it does, is less infectious. And so it has kind of a double approach is what they're looking at. And it has um, some activity even when there's raltegravir resistance present. Um, and they, they just have fancy ways of showing it. So I think uh, that's important. And the other thing to take home is that as these drugs are developed, they can be synergistic with the strand transfer inhibitors like raltegravir, alvotegravir, and probably dolutegravir. So another interesting drug coming along with a novel mechanism of action that will force us to leave things. And this is the one about the infectivity. So I'm going to finish with a question. Which of the following drugs that you just heard about, even though I rushed through the last couple, just in your guess, uh, is the most interesting or promising? Uh, go ahead and vote. You're supposed to have a pink panther. I guess Henry Mancini died, so can't have that now. Okay. Let's see what folks said. Yeah. Oh. Pe people like Dahlia Tegavir the most. Okay, fine. Thank you very much. Sorry I went a couple minutes long. Appreciate it. Let's do some questions for Mike. So, again, come to the mics, and I already have some from the uh, audience here. 
Mike, why did the recent guidelines, the IAS and DHHS, recommend the L-Vitegravir 4-drug as an alternative regimen given its performance in the studies you reviewed? Well, I think it's, I can't speak for the whole panel. I can just say that my gestalt is that the drug has had about an existence in the market of about four weeks. And I think it's just a little bit early to see how the renal stuff's going to play out in the real world. I think it was a bit of a leap to just jump right in and say it's a preferred regimen. But alternative's pretty good. Alternative is what it means. It's an alternative regimen. It's an approved drug regimen. It works well. And I go back to the bigger picture of, for a given patient in your practice, what you think and what fits them, for that person it will be an approved or a preferred drug for that person. So I don't think it makes that much difference, to be honest. Mike, can you use the L-Vitegravir regimen in a patient with raltegravir failure and resistance? Typically, no. So L-Vitegravir and raltegravir, it's kind of like nevirapine and efavirenz. You have failure to one, the other one's not likely to work. Here's an interesting one that takes us back. Any experience using rotating cycles of ART regimens in someone with MDR virus? Wow. So there was a study called the SWATCH study that was out of Barcelona back in, yeah, carefully check your SWATCH. Um, it basically doesn't work too much. And I think it, it also can lead to uh, confusion for the patient and uh, alternating toxicities. I guess in a couple of unusual circumstances it might be logical to do that, but the answer I think in general is not, not really a great approach. Would you use uh, the L-Vitegravir quad in a patient with only an M184V mutation? I think I probably would. Um, I think uh, you're, again, like we talked about earlier in the PrEP story, uh, there's pretty good potency left with tenofovir, some with FTC, even though it's not fully potent, and you still got the L-Vitegravir active with the tenofovir. Probably okay. I mean, you might want to be a little bit careful with it. We're a little bit concerned about raltegravir sometimes, and that situation, but um, I don't know of any strong evidence yet against that, but we could debate it. Would you use rilpivirine in patients with only a K103N mutation? I have done that uh, in cases where I was worried about the patient's adherence. Uh, they were not tolerating other regimens well, and if I was pretty confident, which is kind of hard to say, that there weren't other mutations that were sort of laying below that 5% level where you can detect it. I think that's the concern. But anecdotally, I've had success with it. I think we just need to be cognizant of the fact that when there's a K103N, sometimes there are other mutations that could weaken the nucleoside backbone, and that's where you can get into some failure. But uh, truth uh, be told, I do that in my practice some when I've got a specific situation I'm dancing through. There is uh, one randomized study that's in the package insert of rilpivirine that took people failing efavirenz-based regimens and then randomized them either to rilpivirine, or right. I think it was etravirine, actually. That's correct. Containing regimen or a PI, and the PI group did significantly better, the, probably because of the reasons. Yeah, and the problem with, if you really dig into the details of that study, most of those patients had been failing for quite a while before they switched, so it wasn't just that K103, and a lot of times the other mutations were definitely there, and in that case, I definitely would avoid rilpivirine. I've heard that the L-Vitegravir quad can't be dosed with any other antiretrovirals. Is that true? Not that I know. I'm not sure why you'd want to necessarily, but... Um, 
because you got to know for FTC and Alva Tegerberg. I don't know the answer to that. I, I, I don't know a reason why you couldn't, except that you're going to have the Kobe effect, just like you would Ritonavir. You're going to have to make some concessions, and I don't think we have a lot of data outside of Adazanavir for the boosting effect. Um, I'm going to ask you one of my own. The, uh, you know, now that we are about to have three integrase inhibitors, and dolutegravir has activity against raltegravir and elvitegravir resistant strains, yes. much like the PI discussion we used to have, should we use that integrase inhibitor first, or should we save it for failure of the other integrase yeah, inhibitors? It's, it's almost philosophical. I'll just tell you, my personal feeling is that no matter what we choose for our patients, especially for a naive regimen, 10 years ago I'd treat anticipating failure. Now I'm treating anticipating success. So I'm going to pick the regimen that has the best chance of working for that patient with the idea that they will stay on it for a long time and be very happy. One thing I didn't say about dolutegravir that's going to be important is that it's, it's metabolized by glucuronidation, sort of like uh, raltegravir, so it, it, it's, its side effect, or sorry, its drug interaction profile is going to be much better than anything that's ritonavir-driven. Uh, um, how much does Elvitegravir Quad cost, and how does it compare with the other one pill once a day regimens? Average wholesale price is $28,300 per year. Um, it's, it's more expensive overall. Um, again, when you're looking at the other drugs, they're not priced as the package, so you have to add the, the Truvada component to the Ritonavir, to the Anazanavir. So it's comparable to a regimen like that, but it's, it's expensive. But remember, most ADAPs are going to be getting some discounted rate, but I think even with a discount, it's going to be a little bit more pricey than our other regimens. Who the heck is the treatment-naive patient that you would use an L-Vitegravir regimen hmm. over all others in? Why would you select that? Well, I think we're going to see some of that in our next uh, case thing, so I don't mean to punt. But in general, someone who's got relatively normal renal function, who wants one pill once a day, who might be depressed, I want to avoid uh, atazanavir. I mean, sorry, uh, I keep doing that. Avoid efavirenz on, and uh, uh, maybe has a sensitive gut uh, with a lot of diarrhea at some point in time. I don't know. But that type of, someone who I also might use a boosted PI, but that can get one pill once a day is one way to say it. Okay, uh, we're at the end of the time, so let's thank Mike for a great talk. Can you do the panel now?